Good evening, Sangha. Nature Sangha. You came back. Any of you wanted to stay out there in the woods? <laughs> Maybe there's a still f- a few people out there in the woods. Hopefully they're not lost. So we don't really have any time planned in for this um, harvest from your solo time, but I do want to take a couple of minutes and just um, just maybe hear just one word or two word. What what remains after you've spent the last several hours immersing in the natural world? Uh, on your own rhythm and your own schedule and with your own solitude. Just what's present right now as you feel the influence of that time, that immersion, any word, one word, two words, the light, infinity, vitality, roots, Sobriety, possibility, curiosity, challenge, belonging, mystery, delight, calm, coyote. Non-restlessness. Joy. Wisdom on the walls in the smoking hut. Nature is everywhere. Reset. Self-compassion. Opening. Nourished. Love. Wind. Humility. Community. Three conversations. Freedom. Laughter. Wonder. Realization. Reverence. That sounds like a very fruitful harvest to me. Some beautiful qualities really quite a range of sublime qualities of the heart and of mind and being. And whatever that was like for you, and as I, as I did this harvest the other day, There's both the expansive dimension of experience and also for some maybe challenging or confronting, who knows. Just to welcome whatever's here and to be mindful of how, how this immersive time in nature, both in community and in solitude, and alone together informs you, informs your practices, 
touches your heart, opens your mind. And so when you leave here and you learn to embody these these practices, these ways of being in nature, then you can, of course, take the fruits of this work and keep exploring these dimensions of experience in your own backyard, in your own ecosystem, wherever you live. Um, and hopefully this, this is for many, maybe many of you, a beginning of a lifetime exploration of what it means to be uh, contemplative outdoors, what it means to be in deep relationship and deep reciprocity with the more than human world. And so I'm happy to hear such a, what I would regard as a very fruitful uh, harvest. And of course, our retreat is not over. We still have a full day of practice tomorrow. We'll have some more solo time in the afternoon tomorrow to continue that exploration. So, and some of the themes that, that were spoken to, I'd like to, to elaborate on tonight. Um, in some ways, I could just throw this talk out and just riff on all the beautiful different dimensions. And I'll touch on some of them, but some of them I haven't planned to talk about. But, um, I'm, I'm, the, the word that, that most is echoing in my, in my head from what was said it was reverence. And I love that that was someone's experience and maybe many of yours' experience. Reverence, I think, when we come into the natural world with awareness, one of the things that arises and is evoked is reverence, deep reverence, something that's so sadly lost uh, most of the time. So what I'd like to talk about Tonight is some of the domains that you were pointing to, which is the domains of the heart, and particularly the exploration of love, and dimensions and flavors of love as we, as we are outdoors in the natural world and what arises in that. And as you've probably been noticing in these days and today, that being outdoors it's a beautiful, it's like a playground for the heart. Yeah. It's, a, it's like the heart can wake up in ways that may have been long asleep. And we can be touched and all kinds of effervescent qualities can arise in relationship, in intimacy with the natural world. And so, um, so I want to just tease out some of those qualities some of which will be quite familiar to you, um, some frameworks. Um, and, and I'm not surprised all these different qualities that were mentioned that were, arose for you as the heart opens, because when we go outside in this way, we, um, it's like we're coming home. And we're coming home to an environment that our nervous system, our cells, our DNA 
our ancestry, our bones know. It's familiar, it's home. And so it's like returning to, to beloved family. And, and so it makes sense that we, the heart feels connection or open or love or beauty or joy. This is a poem from, well, it's really a reading from um, Meister Eckhart, Christian mystic. And he said, wrote, when I was the stream, when I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, and wing, when I was the sky itself, no one ever asked me did I have a purpose. No one ever wondered was there anything I might need, for there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear and questions came, and I wept and wept tears I'd never known before. So I returned to the river. I returned to the mountains. I asked for the hand in marriage again. I begged, I begged to wed every object and every creature. So hopefully some of you are feeling some semblance of that coming home and wishing to be in deep in deep relationship with the more than human world. And hopefully some of you are feeling uh, love that comes from your heart. And I'll be talking about those dimensions of love, facets of love. But maybe also some of you are feeling love from the environment, trees, grasses, birds, clouds, land, hills. Anybody touch into that? Anybody feeling a sense of love coming from as well as going to? This is another Christian, uh, I think, mystic, St. Francis of Assisi. He says, when he says, he's a nature lover, often walking in the fields, he said, such love does the sky now pour that whenever I stand in a field, when I get home, I have to wring out the light. Such love does the sky now pour that when I stand in a field, when I get home, I have to wring out the light. He's saturated in the light of love. And that's a sensitive soul. It's a mystic. So I'm just curious, again, I'll just have you say one word or two. What, what did you fall in love with today? The rain. Moss coming from the rain. Hmm? Wind. Yes, wind, trees, light, clouds, sun, raindrops, sangha, smells, shadows, madrones. Yeah, many, many ways, innumerable ways, really, we can fall in love. So when you go home, you go home to your family and maybe some of you to see your spouses and you might say, oh, I fell in love with so many things this retreat. <laughs> Nature things. Human things maybe, who knows. And one thing that's so interesting in this exploration of love is to also think back when you first felt a, a kindling of love in nature. 
Like often the reason, one of the reasons we're here is because we had early childhood experiences where we were touched by, for me it was a cherry blossom tree in, the, in, the, in my back garden in, in Northumberland in northern England that I had a very, very, very close relationship with in all the seasons, climbing, blossoms. And, um, so just cast your mind back. Like, where, 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 When did your heart first get kind of lit up by something? And how that, the thread of that, the influence of that may be still be with you today in some way or other. So I want to say a few things about how some of the ways nature teaches us about love. And again, when I use that word nature, it's like a stone in my mouth. Nature is really everything, but particularly the outdoors, the, the wild landscapes, the, the natural world, the more than human world, shorthand for that. And then I want to talk about how the, the, the flavors of the heart that the Buddha spoke to, how those can also be explored in nature. So one of the things that I think is very pertinent for many, many of us, and it comes up every retreat I teach, is that when we're outdoors, particularly when we're away from people, like on the solo today, and we're having a more intimate connection with nature, that there's a way that we can feel into a sense of um, what's coming from the natural world is a sense that we're okay, that we're okay as we are, that we're not being asked to be anything other than who we are. And something in us relaxes. The identity structures that Susie was pointing to yesterday, the selfing, the um, self-referencing, the comparing, a lot of that just softens and relaxes and at times dissolves. And there's just quiet. And there's just a fundamental sense of okayness, isness, connection. Gretel Ehrlich wrote, everything in nature invites us to constantly be what we are. The natural world doesn't care how you look, what, cl- what cool gear you're wearing, how old you are, what color you are, how able you are, how healthy you are. It doesn't care about any of that. It's just welcoming. There's a kind of a welcoming spirit we can feel, an accommodation. And so we can let go of some of the painfulness of unworthiness or uh, lack of belongingness. And we just feel like, oh, this is, this is a home. It may not be where I live, but it feels home. Anybody feel that? Anybody feel a sense of home or homecoming? One of the things I love about backpacking is I don't see any mirrors so I don't see this, whatever this is, in the mirror. There's no reference. Maybe I look in a pond, but not really. And, and there's a freedom that comes from that. There's a, there's a wildness that starts to emerge that's not caught up in self-referencing and self-image. And, we, and our identity starts to widen and broaden. This is a poem I love to share from uh, Fleur Adcock, New Zealand poet called Weathering. She says, my face catches the wind from the snow line 
and flushes with a flush that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan vanity, wanting to look young forever, to pass. But now that I'm in love with a place that doesn't care how I look, and if I am happy, happy is how I look, and that is all. My hair will grow gray in any case, my nails chip and flake, my waist thicken, and the years work all their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten as well, it's little enough lost for a year among the lakes and the vales, where simply to look out my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. Now now that I'm in love with a place that doesn't care how I look, and if I'm happy, happy is how I look. That is all. So you look pretty happy (laughs) in your wild selves. I can see the brightness in your eyes and the flushness of your cheeks. and Beautiful. And in the same way, nature teaches us about the quality of non-judgment. We live in a judgmental world. We judge ourselves, we judge each other, we put ourselves to critical standards, we exert those on others. And then we go outdoors and we go past like that beautiful oak, was one of my favorite oaks, still is, even though he, she has... um, uh, sudden oak death, and so, so a huge limb has fallen off. As the one, as you go towards the Hermitage Meadow just before the turn above the, above the platform. And we don't look at the tree and go, a little messy over there, like a little imbalanced. I don't know, you should shed some of that crinkly, lichen stuff. You know, I saw, I saw a little butterfly today and this time of year, they come, this, this, this species, the, their wings are often a little shredded, like they're just tatty, you know. Looks like it's wearing, like, you know, really old clothes. And, and, and we don't go, oh, you know, come on, get it together. You know, a bit, bit, bit sloppy there. You know, no, it's just like, wow, amazing. It can fly with it, wings eroding and, and, and weather-beaten. Or we see a stone that's cracked open. And we don't go, hmm, hmm. <laughs> no, it's like, wow, beautiful in its, in its symmetry or in its rawness. So, and, you know, can we translate that to some of ourselves, right? We're so human. I was talking to someone today and yesterday and every day on my teacher retreats and feeling into the the vulnerability of, of, of our being, the tenderness, and all of our quirks and foibles and idiosyncrasies and eccentricities. And we so often judge all of that. But it's what makes us unique. If we're all the same, if we're all perfect, whatever perfect might mean, because it doesn't exist in, in, in life, how dull would that be? Right? We're, we're, you know, a tree and, and, and rocks and crags they are beauty because of their, their dynamism and their, their exuberance and their expression and their difference and their eccentricness. So can we feel in that that our, our, what we might think of as a foible or as a quirk or as a flaw or as a deficiency or vulnerability 
It's just nature. It's, it's your nature expressing itself that needs to be met kindly, caringly, and held, you know, respected. You know, so nature teaches us about the, 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 the perfection of imperfection. You look at any tree, it's perfectly expressing, it's, it's, it's imperfectly perfect or perfectly imperfect, whichever way you want to look at it. And it has an isness, there's a suchness in everything, including ourselves. And when we let go of the judging and um, comparing, we can feel into something more essential, that we are as we are in all of our uniqueness. And nature teaches us in different ways that we are home, that we are welcome here, that we belong because we are of the earth, we're from the earth. And the more we spend time on, on the earth, it, outside in the elements, we start to feel our earth nature, like of course we belong here. We are, we are of this place. We are the surface of the earth, moving, expressing, aware of itself. I read something from a um, wonderful, wonderful book, if you haven't read it, called Love Letters to the Earth by Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed... Mm, within last year and um, this is from one of the one of the chapters he says dear mother earth i bow my head before you as i look deeply and recognize that you are present in me and i'm a part of you i was born from you and you're always present offering me everything i need for my nourishment and growth my father mother and ancestors are also your children we breathe your air, drink your water, eat your food, your herbs heal us when sick. Dear Mother, wherever there is soil, water, rock, or air, you are there nourishing me and giving me life. You are present in every cell of my body. My physical body is your physical body. And just as the sun and stars are present in you, they are also present in me. You are not outside of me, and I am not outside of you. You are more than just my environment. You are nothing less than myself. So, Of course, as we immerse outdoors, we start to feel that viscerally, not just intellectually, viscerally, that homecoming, that welcoming, that sense of belonging. And one of my sort of ongoing inquiries of late is, is this often occurs to me when I'm walking that the, the, the notion of walking on myself, I can't quite put it into words, but when we're walking on, when we're walking, we're walking on the earth, which is ourselves, which is a very, very mystical thing. I can't, I hope you've sensed that at times when you're walking here, walking on the grass, walking on the leaves, walking barefoot. There's something so sacred about that simple act of connection. And then 
nature and in its innumerable teachings, one of them, and this is a beautiful time, is a beautiful day to notice that in a beautiful season, is it invites us to love and to fall in love, but not to grasp, not to cling, right? Now, what great teacher than the autumnal leaves, right? We're surrounded by these beautiful autumnal leaves. Maybe pales in comparison to maybe if you live on the East Coast or somewhere, but still this beautiful turning of the leaves, the crimson, even the lovely poison oak that you don't want to touch, you kind of might want to touch because it's so lush and pink and red. And, and the, the, the beauty of the, the transience today of the rain and the clouds, and it's, it's exquisite, and it's also fleeting and ephemeral. There's actually nothing to hold on to because it's fleeting. It's shifting through, it's shifting sands through our fingers. And so it's asking us to love and to let go, to appreciate, to notice, and to not hold on. To not bind, what does Blake say? He that binds binds he that binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. He who tries to bind the joy, grab the joy. No, we appreciate the joy. And like the wind, like the cold wind that came through, we let it blow through. So, so this, and I could go on with other teachings, but I also want to talk about the ways that we can understand the, the flavors of the heart as the Buddha spoke to, the Brahma-viharas, these abodes of the heart, how nature really is a natural mm, conduit for them to you know, come forth. I remember teaching a, a metta retreat uh, with Sharon Salzberg some years ago. It was my birthday. I was due to give the talk, and Sharon said, what do you want to talk about? I said, well, I want to talk about what I love, which is nature and love. And in general, in, in meta retreats, I'd never heard nature referenced in relationship to meta. It was about sentient beings and myself and these different categories of people. But um, it's like, we need to include <laughs> the myriad beings, if we're wishing... Uh, Meta for all beings, it's really important to also get to know those beings, which means to go outside and feel and see and hear and listen and touch and taste the, 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 the plethora of life. And so I love when we cultivate meta love in the outdoors, we're surrounded by this teeming life that's, that's loving us and that we can radiate our love too. It makes much more sense to me than sitting in my room doing that, even though doing that's okay too. So loving, loving what is. In this heart of the Brahmavihara is the heart of metta, unconditional, boundless love. And I would say nature, as I've been saying, is a way that naturally allows that to, to come forth. This is, uh, I'll read parts of this poem from Drew Lanham, who's a wonderful 
uh, African-American birder and nature writer. It's called Love for a Song. He says, love is doled out on the whipperool's summer wanting or for the meadowlark's ringing song. Our longing for springs greening from our sun-starved spirits down to our bare-toed roots. We seek the winding path and wander until we find the sweet spots. Black water cypress swamp, tall grass prairie sweep, the place where moonlight glances off, tide slick stones that make us weep. We revel in wildflower bloom, marvel in the migratory sojourns of birds dodging falling stars. Sink yourself deep in the dizzying dance of pollen-drunk bees. Find hope in the relieved canopies of the tallest trees. Wind and water, storm and surf, they can move us. Therein is the turn-on, it's the honey-sweet seduction. Nature asks only that we notice a sunrise here, a sunrise there, the surge, that overwhelmingly inexplicable, inexplicable thing in a swallow's joyous flight that melds the heart and head into sensual love in that moment of truly seeing that is love. So again, just thinking back to what touched you what touched your heart to open to love today in a way that was natural, that didn't require any work, any effort. Maybe you've, you've cultivated metta practice, the quality of metta in meditation. Maybe you've, it's been very easy for you. Maybe it's been challenging. And sometimes when we go outside, we actually can access it in a much more natural way. And I was walking along the, I think it's the Madrone Trail, and hopefully some of you took that trail today, and if you haven't, take it tomorrow, because there's a that very majestic grandmother oak there, and it's just wearing this emerald robe of moss, and it's breathtaking, and, it's, and it just it's almost like breaks the heart open. It's so, so joyous. And what's interesting about the quality of metta, which has a different than romantic love or love that's conditional, which is often so part of our human experience, there's a certain bartering dimension can be to love. One of the things I've loved about being outdoors is nature invites us to love all of it. The howling rain, the cold wind. I was walking, I was up a trail some years ago here, and um, it was spring, it was lush, lovely grass, green, and uh, on the trail I noticed at the very, very tip of a long blade of grass, there was a tick lying right on the tip, right in the middle of the path, exactly where they needed to be to latch on to a nice warm-blooded mammal like me so it could survive. And I forget what the, re the retreat was, it may have been a meta-retreat. And I felt this spontaneous love for this tick. I don't like ticks. I don't want them anywhere near me or anywhere near you or anywhere near this property for that matter. But it was just, it, it's a being trying to live just like we are trying to survive. 
its its mode of survival is not really you know so great for us or for other beings, but that's its mode of survival, and it was just doing its thing. <laughs> that's how they are. They their hands and legs are just waiting for a nice warm-blooded mammal or any being that will carry them. Uh, similarly with snakes, I have a sort of love-fear relationship with snakes. I think they're amazing creatures, and they're also startling when I see them. And I've come across many snakes here, rattlesnakes, other snakes, and I initially get startled, and then there's an invitation, oh, can I love this too? Can I love this too? When the flies and the mosquitoes are buzzing around, I'm going to be teaching a retreat next week in Baja, and there's these little flies that love to, they love moisture. It's very dry there, so, you know, moisture is in the eyes, the nostrils, the ears, the mouth, and, you know, okay, may you be well. Be happy. May you not go up my nose. <laughs> May you not get stuck in my ear. Right? So there's all kinds of things that we can learn to expand. Like just like when we're in, sitting in the forest and we hear rustle. Right? And the Buddha originally taught metta, so the story goes, because his uh, monks and nuns were practicing in the forest and they were afraid of both the, the beings there and also the spirits. And um, metta is a way of soothing the heart. So, it, so whenever you feel anxious or distressed or you know, afraid of being alone or what the rustles are that you can't see, very helpful to, to, to radiate metta both for yourself and also for the whatever beings are there. There's all these amazing stories from the tradition of monks and nuns you know, coming across tigers in Thailand and crocodiles and radiating metta and well they live to tell the tale so I'm not saying try that you know it comes with a warning I just have to share this story um, so I was teaching so I think I mentioned I run I say run this awaken the wild teacher, meditation teacher training and I, had, I, was tra- I was on one of those retreats with, with this one cohort, and we were, we were uh, up in the foothills of the Sierras. And I had people go out to this adjacent land where we could watch the sunrise coming over the Sierras. And so we all lined up on this path, um, this trail, and I'd forgotten that the, the neighbor sometimes ran his cattle on that piece of land. So we got out there and we were sitting quietly and just waiting for the sun. We got out quite early, so we were waiting for a long time. And then I was like, oh, right, the cows are here. And it was this herd of beautiful, really black, long-haired cows and calves and their calves. And there's about 30, 40 of them. We were just sitting, waiting for the sunrise. So they said, and they come over, just like where you lot are. They come right over, and we're just sitting. They're like, oh, this is weird. You don't usually see two-legged sitting on the floor still. And we were eye-level, right, because I'm sitting here. So the, so the, and the, the young fawns would come up, you know, a little, you know, sniffing. And, and, it, and it was cold, so we could see the, 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 uh, the exhale, the nostrils, and they see the moist black nose and their big brown eyes and beautiful eyelashes and the, and the big flapping ears and... The fawns would come up and look a little, sniffle, and then run back to the mothers. And sometimes the mothers would come up and they run back. And there's this amazing satsang, you know, like darshan, like this, this meeting of, of, of beings. And, it, and the heart just, just 
broke open. It was, it was just, everybody just fell completely in love with these, these cows. And there was two, if not three people said after that experience they could never eat meat ever again. Because you look into the eyes of a being and you think, how could I eat this? This beautiful, sacred being. That's metta. Vast, open, simple, connecting, love in the simplest form. Another dimension of the, the heart that the Buddha spoke to is joy. Mudita, the joy, appreciative joy of others, but I think also joy as a quality of the heart. And nature is, I think, um, place par excellence to feel joy. Anybody feel joy today or delight or rapture or any, any other flavor of those? Ecstasy, wonder. It's a great line from the poet Mary Oliver. She says, when it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. All my life I was a bride married to amazement. In another poem, she, she has this line in the poem Messenger. She says, um, my work which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. How many times did you stand still today, like me standing still facing that beautiful oak and just astonished at the beauty and the magnificence and the emerald green. And talk about wonder, right? Moss, such an amazing, amazing old species, as far as I know. In this climate, you know, it is dry, you know, parched for, what, six months? Since the last decent rain? And then, you know, barely half an inch of rain today, and suddenly, phew, it just comes back to life. That's miraculous. Talk about patience. Steady trust. Trusting the rain will come. Amazing. Well, the joy of the crescent moon we've been seeing setting down behind the hill the mist rising in the morning, the light coming through the trees. What brings you joy here? Color, the colors. Mm -hmm. Coyotes uh, howling. Mm -hmm. The weather changing. Yeah, just that, that dance. Clean air, mm -hmm. yeah, especially after the rain, so clean, so clear. Mm? Trees, yes, trees, so much joy. And so this quality of joy, appreciative joy, I'm talking more about joy uh, right now, so necessary for our spirit, just as I mentioned that quote from Jack Gilbert, you can do without pleasure, but not delight. And especially in these times 
In the pandemic, in the times of isolation, in the stress, in the social rupture and upheaval that we're going through, it's so important that we also take in beauty, take in that which uplifts the heart. It's medicine. Doctors are now prescribing time in nature as medicine, as as a necessary part of our well-being. We know that. We don't need doctors or research, lots of good neuroscience research now about the positive impact of nature and how it gladdens the heart. But another thing that I think we, we, we can do in retreat, but we can also do in our lives where we learn it, we can deepen into it here, is we give ourselves permission to savor. Right? Often in our lives, we're so busy and we're rushing, we might see a beautiful tree <clears throat> on the sidewalk, wherever that might be, or in the park. And we go, oh, that's cool. And we go back to our phone. Oh, that was cool. <clears throat> and to give yourself time to savor, like let it in, like stop. If you see a beautiful something, stop. Really let it saturate you. And there's some great lines in, in the text where the Buddha talks about entering the absorptions, the second, third, jhana, and he says that the, the meditator enters and abides in the second jhana, third absorption, and the entire being is suffused and saturated and permeate, permeated by joy and bliss and rapture born of seclusion. That was someone who is not afraid of letting their being be saturated by joy and delight and rapture. That is a wholesome experience. And, and it's really good medicine. And so these next, however long we're here, 48 hours or whatever it is, like notice when something touches you, the light in the morning, the mist rising, the moss, the dance of a, of a whatever it is. So oh, pause, oh, joy, it's like this. The light is like this. Feel its goodness. And then also the, another quality and flavor of the heart, karuna, compassion. Right? There's so much vulnerability in life. There's so much uh, where how life is, struggles to survive. I was seeing, a, when I was looking at working on this talk, I saw a deer darting across the hillside. Right? Obviously startled. You know, there are predators here. Um, and um, you know, life is vulnerable. Just watch the turkeys and how they're, they're constantly tracking. Or watch the families of quail and how they're tracking. There's usually one standing guard to keeping others safe. I was watching a, a small bird get chased by a hawk yesterday. There's In the summer, there's swallows' nests here, and they, they nest above the bathroom doors. They make these beautiful spittle nests, and, and then uh, after a few months, as you see these little swallow chicks, you know, and you see these, all you see is mouths. <laughs> it's, like, it's like mouths with a little sort of nascent feathers, and sometimes they lean their, their, their heads over the, 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 the top of the nest, so you just see the mouth, <laughs> like five of them. And they're shivering, and they look so vulnerable. Sometimes the owl comes and the great horn owl I've seen lands on the roof and he's looking down right at the nest. He can't get to it because they've wisely put it under the, under the eave. 
vulnerable. Means that it can break the heart open. We fall in love with so much. We see, you know, like when I see the oak trees and they're struggling with sudden oak death, and it's it just breaks my heart. Just as seeing, you know, there was a bird dead on my on my doorstep yesterday because uh, it hit the glass door. And it's just tragic. It's painful, and that's life. It's real. Or when we walked through the forest yesterday. And we're feeling the parched dryness of the drought and the struggle of the trees, the stress of the trees, should I say. <clears throat> Glenn Olbrecht, who's an eco-psychologist, who's a, also a great wordsmith, he coined this word, solostalgia, the combination of solos, of solace, and algia, pain, that describes the experience we commonly have now, particularly where we're living, when we're living near a denuded habitat, where we go into nature and where we once felt solace, we now also feel pain because we know what's happening to the environment. We know the stress of the forest. We can smell it sometimes in the smoke in the air and the dryness of the land. And so... And that's, you know, can evoke the quality of compassion, of care, care for the struggle of life and the vulnerability of life, of endangered species, of all species. And we care and we feel, and sometimes the, the feeling is burning. It's the grief, the sadness, the loss, the the rage, the fear, the sadness, the tenderness, we feel because we love. Right? If you didn't care and if you didn't love, if you didn't love, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't, it wouldn't bother you. The tree died, well, just tree. But no, we love, we're connected because we know we're kin. We know we're connected. We know we're interdependent. We depend on each other. And so, so it's important to recognize that our grief and our sadness and the solastalgia is a sign of our connection. We are the earth's nervous system. And as such, we feel when the, when the, the body of earth is, is under stress, which it is. And so we feel the distress or the sadness or the concern or the anger or the fear or the despair. But I'd say, you know, it's essential both to be allowing those feelings, feeling, making space for whatever tenderness, vulnerability is there, because it needs to be felt, it needs to move through. It also will allow the heart to stay open, to feel also the joy or the passion to protect or to care. That feeling, that love is what will motivate us. You know, the, the, the driving force for my work, all my nature work, is this phrase, we protect what we love. We protect what we love. If we, don't, if we don't know it, there's no chance for loving it. If we don't love it, there's not much energy for protection. So waking up in nature, we, we fall in love and we act, hopefully, more with more care. This is from Robin Moore Kimmerer, wonderful... Potawatomi uh, teacher, biologist, she says, 
Knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. This is really profound and important, I think, that for us to take in. Knowing that you love the earth changes you as maybe you're feeling change this week in some way, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel the, that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. So briefly, lastly, um, the fourth of the flavors of the heart, equanimity, um, can also be very well supported as we spend time outside. And nature is, again, in so many ways, teacher par excellence. So there's different ways we can understand equanimity. We, you might not sort of use that word. I don't use that word much except in Buddhist context. But an aspect of it is tenacity, right? this ability to be uh, rooted and, and steady. Right? I think about when I'm teaching down in Baja and the, the ficus trees that root, around, that root around these huge boulders, or the, or the cactus survive and they shrink down in the drought years, of which there are many. And there's just this tenacity that we can draw strength from. Or the steadiness and the patience, like I was talking about with the, the moss and the lichen, or the plants and the trees that, that weather the fallow cold winters. Another quality of equanimity is spaciousness. Right? We can access a lot of spaciousness the sky in the space that's all around us, above us, below us, the way the sky receives the storms. And so a lot of teachers about equanimity, the way the trees just stay rooted, yet fluid, flexible, and responsive. It's not about being a stone statue. We're not statues. We're live, fleshy, sensate, feeling beings. It's about feeling, rooting, resourcing, grounding, having an understanding of reality. What supports equanimity is learning to be present with what is. And that our mindfulness practice is, a, is the sort of basis for equanimity. Right? We sit in the midst of our experience. Meditation is an equanimity-building practice because we sit whether it's beautiful or joyful or boring or exciting or hard or blissful, we just sit steady, just like the trees in the storms. And so the quality of equanimity that we can feel in, in the natural world, in mountains, in rocks, in trees, in living systems that have this tenacity, patience, steadiness, spaciousness, we can lean into that, lean into the that we also have that capacity to be steady, 
to meet any weather, to abide in a spacious awareness. So I want to close with a couple of um, things, and I, I want to go back to the um, the uh, love letters to the earth um, from Thai Thich Han, and he says, talking about in times of great upheaval, he writes, "In those moments, we have turned to you, dear mother, and asked whether or not we could count on you." on your stability and compassion. You didn't answer us right away. Then beholding us with great compassion, you replied, yes, of course, you can count on your mother. I will always be there for you. But then the earth said, dear children, you must ask yourselves, can your mother count on you? Can your mother count on you? And so, and we'll speak a little more to this tomorrow night, one of the things that may be arising for your reflection is how does all this practice, how does this immersion, this intimacy, this love, opening connection, wisdom that we're developing outdoors, how does that relate to the ecological crisis that we're in, the climate crisis, to the challenges we're facing as a species? And so one of the questions I like to offer in that, um, because I'm not going to give you the answer, (laughs) is how does the earth wish to move through you? Kind of a little similar to what Ty was saying. How does the earth wish to move through you? Another way of putting it, how is the earth moving through you? Because the earth is always moving through you. Another way of putting the question is, how does love move through you in response to what's happening uh, ecologically or in the world? How does love move through you? So I will leave you with that question, and let's just have a few moments of silence. May our practice and emotion in the natural world here open the heart to love. May that inspire within us a wish to protect that which we love.
So, thank you for your attention. Any announcements? So, thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.